0: Today on Something You Should Know, there's a way to make meetings a lot more productive. Barack Obama does it, Mark Zuckerberg does it, and so can you. Then, understanding the science of cooking, from meat to vegetables.
1: Contrary to what uh, raw food advocates might say, not all vegetables are best eaten raw. So, yep, carrots, you should cook them. Uh, Spinach, you should cook. Asparagus needs to be cooked a bit. Plus,
0: what are the 10 most dangerous minutes to drive a car? And did you know a lot of kids today have health problems because their teeth are too crowded and overlapping?
2: The reason the teeth are uh, overlapping each other is because the jaw is too small. And it is too small because it hasn't developed to its full potential. And what happens is we've changed our diet and we're not chewing really
0: hard foods. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi. Say, how do you feel about going to meetings? I know a lot of people don't like them because they seem like a colossal waste of time, nothing much gets done, and nobody says anything very interesting. But when someone calls a meeting, maybe the problem is where and how you have it. Because typically, for a meeting, you go into a room and sit around a table. And that may just be a horrible idea. The new thing now is walking meetings. There's some solid research to support the idea that walking meetings are better. And there's some high-profile supporters like Barack Obama, Mark Zuckerberg, and Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey, all like to have walking meetings. It seems that when we walk, we let our guard down, according to a paper written by Stanford researchers and published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. Walking releases your filter. Ideas that you hold back in a conference room will likely come spilling out when you're walking. After comparing people who met in a room with those who walked and talked, they found that people who walked were able to come up with more unique ideas, both while they were walking and immediately after. And it didn't matter much if they walked on a treadmill or they walked outside. While creativity is well served by walking meetings, the Stanford researchers found that sitting is a better option when you have to solve a problem for which there is only one right answer. And that is something you should know. Whether you're a gourmet cook or you just make the occasional sandwich in the kitchen, there is science behind what you're doing. It's food science. And when you understand how some of it works, it can help you make better, tastier food. Dr. Stuart Faramond knows about food science. He's written a beautiful book that I think every cook ought to have in their kitchen called The Science of Cooking, Every question answered to perfect your cooking. Hey Stuart, so explain, because it's an interesting story,
1: explain how you got into the topic of food science. I have a very uh, interesting and peppered history. I was originally a medical doctor, And about 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, which forced me to leave medicine. I then went into teaching and then went into freelance science communication. And from there, I sort of fell into food science um, and now do uh, food science research and have written this book, The Science of Cooking.
0: So, yes. Yeah, it's quite a book and that's quite a story. Uh, So I think that that People have their, their ideas, their theories, their techniques about cooking, and some of them may be right and some of them may be wrong, uh, in, according to what the science says. So let's dive in here with what, are you, what do you think are some of the big misconceptions, errors that people make when it comes to food preparation, f- cooking, all that? What are the big headline things that, that like, are like fingernails on a blackboard to you?
1: One of, the, one of my pet hates is when people talk about sealing meat. Many chefs say, uh, get your pan really hot, get your steak, whatever it is, and seal it on both sides. Um, and sometimes people will say that sealing it stops the moisture from leaving. Which isn't true at all. Um, when when you're sealing it, you're actually just searing it, you're getting a brown coat on the outside. you're not retaining moisture, But what's going on is there's there's a reaction going on between the the proteins and the sugars within the muscle. Uh, muscle cells which is forming these wonderful brown flavorful compounds substances that that give it that cooked meaty flavor it's the same uh reaction that goes on on the outside of bread uh, which has that 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 lovely um just baked bread smell and that is the key to why so many things taste so good when you when you fry them and cook them over a high heat so you're not sealing it you're searing it to get these wonderful flavors on the outside And you should do that. Oh, absolutely. You should do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And you can obviously do steak, uh, rare, medium rare, as long as you sear the outside so that any germs, any bugs that might be on the outside, they're killed off and the inside will be uh, quite safe to eat, providing you've not left it for ages and it's gone moldy and all the rest of it. So yes, um, you should do that. And it's... um, yeah, generally speaking, it's it's the same thing. Why why fish skin? It g- it goes all crispy and it gets really tasty. Or or bacon, you get goes kind of brown and b- becomes irresistible. Let's talk about uh, the microwave oven because I think there's a
0: lot of you know there are restaurants that tout the fact that they don't have a microwave that we cook the real old fashioned way and and people have microwaves to heat up coffee, but oftentimes when you cook in them, it's a bit disappointing and. And what's going on in there that that e- e- either works or doesn't work?
1: They are, fan, it's a fantastic piece of equipment, and it's extremely energy efficient. Uh, and one thing that sometimes people say is that it cooks food from the inside out. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but if you ever tried cooking anything of a reasonable size or defrosting something in the microwave, it doesn't. It's still cold in the middle if you take it out early. And it, it does that the the microwave radiation penetrates in about one cent, about half an inch or so into the, the surface. And it cooks up to that level. But it so so in a sense, it's cooking from the inside, but only a very uh, superficial, only, only not very deep inside. Um, and the reason why we don't. Uh, get really nice flavorful food from a microwave is because it's not getting hot enough microwaves heat up water molecules and also to a lesser extent fat molecules and so it heats them up but when it's dried out uh, it doesn't really cook it anymore so um, if you can imagine you've put in let's say you've got some chicken and you've put it into the microwave and you're cooking the chicken the outside layers uh, they warm up, and then the uh, the the water warms up, and then it will dry and dehydrate as the water evaporates away, and then it will stop heating it up, essentially. So it won't go much hotter than a hundred degrees C. And for this fantastic Maillard reaction to take place, it's got to get at least up to one hundred and forty. So. Uh, unless you have a very hot um, hot pan uh, or you're cooking with oil, you're never going to get this to happen, which is why if you were to get some, some meat and you put it into a, a pot uh, to, say, boil it, for example, you'll never get the brown coat on the outside because you can't get the water hotter than 100 degrees C, which is the boiling point of water. So d- does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So what knowing that, what is good and what is not so good to
0: cook in the microwave?
1: One thing that it is very good for is with uh, roasting nuts. So it is possible to get a bit of browning if you have nuts, for example, and you coat them in oil and uh, you put them in um, fairly short bursts in the microwave. You could put a, put them on a plate, a microwave friendly plate. Um, I'd say do 15, 30-second blasts, give it a shake, keep checking it because you don't want it to burn. That can be a very good thing to do in the microwave Uh, and also for veggies, vegetables. Um, It can be a very good way at retaining nutrients. So put them in a... uh, a microwave friendly bowl, a little bit of water in the bottom, uh, your vegetables in there, and it will steam. As the, as the water in the bottom of that bowl uh, heats up, turns to steam, the steam gets caught, because uh, you've got a, a lid on the top, uh, steam gets caught, and it will steam. And steaming um, is a very good way of retaining nutrients and keeping your vegetables uh, with a little bit of bite. And speaking of vegetables,
0: I think there is a belief among many people that it's better to eat vegetables raw than it is to cook them because cooking them somehow destroys
1: many of the nutrients. But what does the science say? Contrary to what uh, raw food advocates might say, not all uh, vegetables are best eaten raw. Some of them are. Onions, uh, garlic, uh, or if you can handle them, they are better eaten raw. And things that have lots of vitamin C in, so bell peppers, for example, they uh, have more nutrition in them if they're eaten raw. Whereas other vegetables like carrots, for example, and spinach, um, vegetables that have lots of um, carotene in them, uh, they need to be cooked to release those antioxidants those beneficial healthful um, substances the nutrients that are in there they need to be cooked to release those so yep carrots you should cook them uh, Spinach, you should cook asparagus is also needs to be cooked a bit um I've got, I've got in the uh, cabbage that's another one that should be cooked I've, uh, in the book i've um, I've got a list of ones that are best raw and best cooked I'm speaking with Stuart Faramond. He is joining us on Skype
0: all the way from the UK. And he is the author of the book, The Science of Cooking, Every Question Answered to Perfect Your Cooking. Are you on LinkedIn? Seems like most professionals and people focused on their careers are. And LinkedIn has something really exciting called LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. It's the perfect way to market your business or yourself and get results. Advertising on LinkedIn's 546 million member network is precise and powerful. You see, you can target your message to just the right people while they're in a professional mindset on LinkedIn. That results in higher quality leads, more website traffic, and higher brand awareness. When it comes to marketing your business, it's all about reaching the right audience at the right time. I've certainly learned that as we've marketed this podcast to build our audience. And if you want to target your customers where they're engaging every day and when they're ready to make a decision, LinkedIn can really help. I've got a great offer here. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com something. That's linkedin.com something for your free $100 ad credit. Terms and conditions apply. It's linkedin.com slash something. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Something you should know? I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Stuart, something I've always wondered about is, why is it that it seems some foods just go together so well with other foods? Coffee and chocolate. Peanut butter and chocolate. There are some foods that just naturally
1: seem to taste better together. It's weird, isn't it? It's very strange. Why on earth does cheese and tomato and basil, why on earth do they go together? You can't really imagine having a pizza without those things uh, with it because they're completely different things. You know, tomatoes are fruits and cheese is this fermented milk thing. And then you've got basil, which is a leaf. And there is an area of science, uh, food pairing science, where researchers have tried to work out what on earth is it that links these things together. And it seems to be that they share similar flavours. These substances in food that are generally called flavour compounds, when two foods uh, share a certain number of these flavour compounds, then they go together. So when you've got your cheese and you've got your tomato, they will have some flavour compounds that are identical. So even though their overall flavour is quite different, the fact that there is a bit of overlap, there are some some hints and some notes of flavour in there that are identical. They will go together. So yeah, th- there's other interesting things like um, what have we got? Kind of like uh, caviar and and steak and oyster and steak and things like this um, that go together surprisingly well. So from this uh, this research from this area, you can actually predict some rather strange combinations that you would never have thought of so one example is beetroot and bacon and i didn't believe that to begin with but you try it and it works surprisingly well Uh, and parsley uh flat um flat leaf parsley and strawberries again they go together quite well so that is your um that's the reason behind it and generally things that are very complex flavored like Uh, chocolate and coffee and roasted beef they've got lots of these lots of flavor compounds a lot of it's due to the roasting and this maillard reaction that's been going on means that there are lots and lots and lots of things that will pair with them i have noticed or
0: or i think i have noticed that recently in the store meat looks redder than it used to and maybe it's the lighting because maybe a red meat's supposed to be more appealing but comments
1: well the first uh, misconception that we should do away with is the idea that bright red is best uh because what what food manufacturers and meat packages will do is that they will prepare the the meat within within the little plastic wrapper and they will control the gas in there uh, and sometimes they put in carbon monoxide to make it artificially bright and red. And anybody who's medical uh, will know that if you're suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning, you get very uh, red, cherry pink lips. And, And in the same way, it forces this artificial reddening of the meat. So... Don't necessarily go off how bright red it is, because also if you have well-aged meat, it will be quite brown. Um, so, yeah, dry-aged meat, which you maybe go to your butcher's and um, he'll there'll be some I don't know some some slightly brown, um, uh, let's say it's, it's fillet or something, and it's been it's been aged, and he can tell you he or she can tell you that that's been dry-aged. Uh, and you'll actually have a lot of flavor in that. Uh, so don't be deceived by whether it's red or whether it's brown. Although, if your meat is sticky or smelly, uh, then that's an indicator that it's uh, that it's possibly gone off. You should trust your senses when it comes to meat. And when you cook
0: steak, whether it's in the kitchen or maybe on the grill, what should you do to it before you cook it? Some people salt it, some people pat it dry. I mean, what's... what? What's the science say?
1: The science says that generally it's a good idea to salt and to season, but don't leave it too long. Because what will happen is that the outside of the meat will will go kind of mealy, slightly mushy. You, You would be curing it. So I would say more than more than an hour, hour and a half, 2 hours and there's lots of salt on there the outside will start to go go a bit mushy and so and not very nice ideally you want the salt to enhance the flavor and in a similar way if you're making a marinade Well, it's often said in recipe books that leave it 24, 48 hours, three days to let the meat absorb in. But in reality, the flavors will only get in a a, a very short distance, maybe... At tops, you're thinking maybe half an inch, no more than that, because meat is full of moisture. It's full of full of water. And so it literally can't get much more in there than what is already there. So all the flavours sit on the outside, and the liquid sits on the outside. So leave it for a bit and some of the flavor will go in, but there's nothing to be gained from leaving it for days and days because the salt and any acids that you've got, um, like lemon juice or vinegar that you've got in your marinade, they will actually make the outside turn a bit mushy and will spoil some of the texture.
0: Well, I imagine an important part of the science of how you cook is what you cook things in, the pots and the pans and all that. So. Talk about that for a bit.
1: The, the most important thing when buying a pan is the thickness of the base. There are lots of different metals that you can get. Uh, generally speaking, uh, the thickness is better, especially for skillets or frying pans. If you can have copper... Uh, but if it's not thick enough, then uh, it won't spread the heat around. The, the reason why people buy copper is because it's very good at transferring heat. So the heat from, from your hob, uh, from the flame, will spread out evenly over the base of the pan. And so your your food will cook evenly and you won't have hot spots and cold spots. But when you do the do the physics and you look at what actually happens, if you've got a thick... Pan, then it really doesn't matter so much the metal that you have. If you have some of the best ones are ones that are combination of aluminium and uh, aluminium and steel, and you can have the best of both worlds. Aluminium transfers heat very quickly. But it but it corrodes very easily. So if you have ones that are that are a combination of stainless steel on the outside and aluminium in the middle, then you will it spreads the heat out very quickly. You have a very hard wearing pan. And look for the thickness rather than the the metal itself. That would be my trick. Um, and cast iron is fantastic. And actually, when you've been using it for a while, it's got a natural non-stick surface on it um uh, th- that's very good but it takes a long time to heat up but the benefit of using iron is that it retains heat for a very long time so if you're making steak you you searing your steak this is something that chefs will do is that they know that the um the iron will hold its heat for a very long time and so you can leave food in there and it'll stay warm whilst you get the rest of your your bits all finished off so lastly, give me one little
0: piece of food science that I probably don't know that that might be useful.
1: Here's a great thing to having perfect poached eggs uh, without the stringy bits. You think that there are two parts to an egg, a yolk and a white. Uh, but that's not true. There's a yolk and there's two whites. There's a thick white and there's a thin white. If you crack your egg and you put it into a into a sieve or a, or a little tea strainer and all the watery white will drain off and you're left with the thick gloopy white now when you put that into simmering water you won't get any of those horrible stringy bits it should all stay together in this nice perfect ball and the fresher the egg the more of this thick white that, that you have so go for fresh eggs uh, when you're doing poached eggs and my little trick is to get rid of that thin white uh, which is just going to go all stringy in the pan anyway uh, by putting it through a sieve first Well, that's
0: good to know. I I don't make poached eggs very often because that's exactly why I don't make them, because I don't like all the the stringy stuff, so I'll have to try that. Dr. Stuart Faramond has been my guest. His book is called The Science of Cooking, Every Question Answered to Perfect Your Cooking. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Stuart. A pleasure, Mike. pleasure. No one likes to think about it, but disasters do happen, and the first 72 hours after disaster strikes are the most important. Uncharted Supply Company has created this amazing thing called the 72 Survival System. It contains quality tools and instructions you need to survive in a hurricane, earthquake or any emergency situation. And what I really like about this is that each of the 35 tools in this kit have been vetted by experts, including military, first responders, mountain guides, doctors and more. And it's all organized by need. There's food and water, shelter and warmth, and first aid. I have one here, and I feel a lot better having it. So will you, because, well, you never know. Times are changing, and the 72 is the product every home, office, and car in America should have. When an emergency arises, be part of the solution. Because the more prepared you are, the safer the world is. Right now, Something You Should Know listeners get $50 off at UnchartedSupplyCo.com when you use my code SOMETHING at checkout. That's $50 off your survival system. Use my code SOMETHING at UnchartedSupplyCo.com for $50 off. So this is interesting. Just recently, my 8-year-old... Angelo went to the dentist and was told he needed dental work and was probably going to need braces because his teeth are too crowded. There is not enough room in his mouth for all his teeth. And it turns out that Angelo is just one of a whole bunch of kids over the past few decades who have had this problem. But think about it. Why should that be? Other parts of our body, more or less... (laughs) fit where they're supposed to go. Why do so many kids have jaws and mouths that cannot accommodate their own teeth? Well, it turns out that the implications for them and everyone else, even if you don't have kids, is rather startling. It can aggravate allergies. It can cause sleep disorders. I mean. Anyway, Sandra Khan is a dentist who has been part of the craniofacial anomalies team at Stanford University and at the University of California, San Francisco. This is her area of specialty, and she's written a new book called Jaws The Story of a Hidden Epidemic. Hi, Sandra. Welcome to Something You Should Know.
2: Thank you. Thank you for your invitation.
0: So as far back as I can remember, you know, there were always a couple of kids in school that had braces to correct some problem that they had with their teeth. But you're saying this is becoming much more pervasive, that there are a lot more kids, like my son Angelo, who, who just have uh, not enough room in their mouth to house their teeth. So what's going on?
2: We all know that a lot of children and even adults need braces today. So we know that teeth are getting crowded and it's it's hard to really see the big picture because we might think that it's the technology that's available now that allows people to have braces and this is why we see the increase in people having orthodontics. But really fifty years ago when I was when I was a kid, there were a few kids that needed braces. It was very rare. So we know that this is a problem that's increasing and we think about it as that we just have a little bit of treatment and we straighten our teeth and everything is fine. But, you know, little by little, we're observing that there's other problems that are associated with the, the crowding because the crowding happens because the, the jaws don't have enough room. And the jaws not having enough room for, to house all the teeth does impact the health, the overall health.
0: So this crowding is is because, uh, explain that again, because it, it, what is happening now that didn't happen 50 years ago?
2: Yeah, so the, the jaw is, you know, the, the part of your face that houses the teeth. And if it's big enough, then all the teeth will grow in when you're a child, and you will not have crowding. Crowding is when the teeth, you know, they're, they're overlapping, and they end up pointing all weird directions. And the, the reason that the teeth are overlapping each other is because the base where they sit, which is the jaw, is too small. And it is too small because it hasn't developed to its full potential. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So what changed? What happened?
2: See, a good example I like to give is if you take a child and you don't let that child walk, you know, or run or exercise its legs, then the bones of the legs are not going to grow. And what happens is we've changed our diet we've changed our, a lot of our habits and we're not chewing really high um, fibrous hard foods so we're not exercising the face muscles like we used to when we were hunter gatherers when we were hunter gatherers we were breastfed for a long, for a longer periods like 3 or 4 years and bre- breastfeeding takes a lot of work from the baby it's if you breastfeed, you're forcing the muscles to, to work. If you're receiving you know, passive milk from a bottle, then your muscles are not working. And after that, we are weaned into very soft foods. Hunter-gatherers would just give hard foods to the babies, and the babies would just figure out how to negotiate and chew and, and extract the nutrients out of you know, very consistent uh, foods.
0: Okay, I mean I understand that there's a big difference between the diet of hunter gatherers many many years ago and today, but you said that th- this change has happened over the last 50 years and it's hard to imagine that in just a couple of generations that we would have evolved into having smaller jaws. It just it seems like it's happened too fast.
2: And absolutely we have not we don't have evolutionary time to have changed our genes. So these changes are not genetic. They are absolutely environmental. And like I said, if a child doesn't walk, the legs will not develop. And that's absolutely environmental. If you have a child that that was not allowed to walk and the, the bones don't develop properly, it's not a genetic change. It's an environmental change. And that's what we're seeing with this epidemic, that we've changed the environment.
0: So when you say it's environmental, You mean that that a child who maybe needs braces because his teeth are too crowded now, if that one child had started chewing and doing the things you're talking about early on, that child might have avoided that diagnosis. Yes.
2: And this is very easy to corroborate because we do have communities that live almost like hunter-gatherers. And when we go and, and look at them, we see that they don't have crowding, they don't have cavities either, and they don't have gum disease. And these are the same humans that we have living in cities. The only difference is that they are living in more primitive environments. And we have looked at, you know, children that moved from those primitive environments to industrialized, you know, reservations or areas where they start eating processed foods, and we see a, a very rapid change in their, the size of their jaws.
0: So I have an 8-year-old who is looking at at some serious dental work because he has exactly what you're talking about. Are you saying that if if he had started chewing earlier, or maybe if he starts chewing more now and doing the things you're talking about, we might avoid that?
2: Look, prevention is a very, very difficult topic because you have to start very early. 8 years old is almost the limit where you can actually reverse the the environment, what's going on with, it, with your child. Uh, I like to use the analogy of baking a cake. If you want to bake a round cake and you pour the batter in a square mold and you put it in the oven, if you realize your mistake right away and get it out and change mold, you can have a beautiful round cake. But if, you, if a few minutes pass and your cake starts baking and then you realize your mistake and you try to fix it, you're never going to end up with a perfect round cake. Right. And For me, my cutout is the first decade of life. After 10, you can start to mitigate some of the damages, but you really can't correct the problem. Before that, it really depends on each, each individual. But if you get your child chewing very hard foods and breathing exclusively through the nose and you know, choosing the, the, the therapies or the activities that will foster more strength in his muscles then he will definitely get better, whatever problem he has.
0: Okay, so I I think I have a pretty good understanding of what the problem is with the jaw and the teeth, but you had said earlier that this has other implications to overall health. So make that connection for me, because it seems like, well, the teeth are crowded, so you uh, build up the jaw so there's room for the teeth, and that's the end of the story. So what are the other health problems?
2: The first thing that you can look at in children, and if you go to a daycare or if you go to, you know, a park or, or, you know, a place where kids are waiting on the sidelines and observe children, you will see that a big percentage, if not all the children, just sit at rest with their mouth open. They hang their mouth open. And this could be just, you know, uh, uh, environmental where they actually have an allergy or it could have started just by not having the strength to hold their jaw closed. Or maybe the parents are not teaching their children to close their mouth. But this, this is where it starts. We, we have to have our mouth closed. We have to have strong muscles. But like I said, it's an epidemic because now we're seeing that the crooked teeth are not the end of the problem. They're just a symptom. And the biggest problem that we're starting to see is sleep apnea. That's you know um, like a extreme snoring when you start snoring and then you stop your breathing at night and this is extremely stressful especially for a growing child it's a very it's a very scary thing and it's not um, it's it's hard to to cure so you have to do prevention and start doing things before this occurs once this is diagnosed it's very hard to to go back
0: so explain the connection here because, well, I know what you're talking about. I I see kids all the time with their mouth hanging open. That seems like I've always seen that. But explain the connection between having your mouth open and chewing and breathing through your nose and crowded jaws. Uh, Tie this all together for me.
2: We can go back to a book that was written in 1850, which is almost 200 years ago. And this book was written by, by George Catlin, and the book, he, he named the book, Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life. He was commissioned to live with the, the Native Americans because they had very low child mortality. And he went out and lived with them. And he realized that the, they had practices that were different than the whites. And the Indians, the Native Americans, they used to nickname not only you know, pale faces to the whites, but they also called them black mouths. So they would observe their mouth was open. And the Native Americans, they all had their mouth closed. And this is 200 years ago. So we know that, you know, it was so important to George Catlin that he named his book. After decades of research, he named his book, Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life.
0: So when kids have their, when I see kids with their mouth open all the time, or they eat with their mouth open, it's just a learned behavior or it's a defect?
2: chicken and egg issue here did the allergy come first or the the mouth breathing came first because there's been research done at Stanford and they've looked at you know inflamed adenoids and tonsils when the adenoids get big and the tonsils get big sometimes you know children have to have them taken out but the research has shown that that is a problem where their mouth breathing for whatever reason and the tonsils have to start getting bigger because they have to do the filtering. When we, you know, make an effort to breathe through our nose, we are filtering whatever, you know, things are in, in, the, in the air, especially if we live indoors. There's a lot more uh, particles indoors. So the nose will filter them. The nose will clean that air, moisturize it, warm it, and it will also add certain things like nitrous oxide, which is an antiseptic, a natural antiseptic. So there's a, there's a circle here. And, you know, some kids may have blockages that are, you know, for whatever reason, it may be a defect. But most kids just, you know, they develop the habit because they are not strong enough. They're not strong enough because they were not breastfeed long enough and they were not winning into hard, chewy foods.
0: I can imagine a lot of people who have kids or who look back on their own childhood relate to what you're saying, and, 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 but what's the solution? I mean, is this just an observation that maybe we need to help future kids, or is there a solution to this now?
2: You know, what Paul, the, uh, Paul Ehrlich says, which I, I like, is he says this is one of those you know human predicament uh, problems that you can personally do something about it. And if you do it early, if you take a baby, even if somebody cannot breastfeed, if you start showing them how to close their mouth, if you start, you know, sitting them at the table and, you know, requ- requiring that they close their mouth when they're addressed, you can change that habit. The older the child gets, the more difficult it is. And reminding is not enough.
0: You know what's interesting about this to me is that... You call this an epidemic. It's on the cover of your book that you're calling this a hidden epidemic. And I haven't really heard about this before. I mean, I've heard about individual cases. I have one in my own family right now. But I would think that dentists would be seeing this more and more, and there would be some sort of outcry, some sort of movement to help correct this problem.
2: Yes, my, my goal for this book is really to have mothers request better treatment for their children. To take their four-year-olds and take them to a, a, a clinician that understands prevention. And not to say, let's wait until the teeth are all crowded and we'll just straighten it, but actually grow their jaws when they're young. Help them develop to their full potential. Because it can be done. I dream to have a, a, an office full of four-year-olds.
0: Well, and I'm thinking too that as those children who have this problem get older, That causes problems in adulthood. I mean, if you're a a mouth breather, if your mouth is always open, that can't be good.
2: Yes, and parents know, for example, you know, when you have your mouth open, if you have a a cold, your mouth dries up, and you don't feel very well because your mouth is dried up. So the saliva really has um, has a job, and the job is to protect the teeth and to keep them clean and to keep them healthy. So if you have your mouth closed, your saliva is going to flow nicely and you're going to feel better. And a child that just has his mouth open at night, it dries up, and we will have more cavities, we'll have gum disease, our mouth will will smell, we'll have bad breath. So closing the mouth has a lot of extremely good um, effects.
0: Well, and but, but that open mouth thing can be caused by other problems like allergies and... and other things right it isn't always because your teeth are crowded
2: well like I said it's a chicken and egg a conundrum we don't know if your mouth is too small because you were not strong enough to keep your mouth closed and you, so you're hanging your mouth open and that made your nose non-functional because in anatomy we say use it or lose it my example of a kid that doesn't walk if your muscles are not strong enough you hang your mouth open, you start breathing through your nose, and then your mouth become, your nose becomes useless. And of course, if you, we might have allergies, there's there's an increase in allergens, but you know, sometimes it's not really the allergy, but it's the fact that the nose is not filtering. So you're you're in, ingesting all those particles in the air, which you know, increasingly we have more and more toxins in the air. So if you're not filtering through your nose, you're eating eating them through your mouth, and that's going to cause more allergies. So it one problem fits the other.
0: Well, this is something I think you know parents really need to know about. I haven't heard much about this before, again, as I said, except anecdotally you know, people have this problem. But uh, what's interesting to me, too, is on your book jacket is all these heavyweights in dentistry who are in support of what you're talking about. So this really is important, and I, I think you're on to something. My guest has been Sandra Kahn. She is a dentist, and she wrote a book with Paul Ehrlich that is out now called Jaws, The Story of a Hidden Epidemic. There's a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you, Sandra.
2: I appreciate your, your um, invitation. Thank you very much.
0: I'm sure that you're a good driver. Well, no, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure. I see a lot of bad drivers, but I'm sure you're not one of them. But even the best of drivers could use a few tricks to become an even better driver. And here are a few from Popular Mechanics. Know that drizzle is deadly. The first 10 minutes of rain are when roadways are the most dangerous because the precipitation causes the oil that has built up on the roads to become very slick. So slow down when it starts to rain. If you want the best fuel economy, drive like you have an egg under your foot that will make you accelerate more smoothly and the more smoothly you accelerate and break the further your gas will go everyone has switched on their turn signal only to find out that the exit they think they're getting off is the wrong exit it's really the next one that you want but what you should do is really get off at that exit because the person behind you may not be paying attention figuring you're already turning And suddenly you're back on the road, and that causes a lot of accidents. Here's a really important one. Practice parallel parking. You don't do it very often, but when you do parallel park, you're sticking out in the road, causing others to wait. Parallel parking is not intuitive at all. So practice getting good at it when people aren't honking at you and waiting for you to get into your parking spot. And yes, you know it's good for gas mileage to keep your tires properly inflated, but if they're not, it's also harder to maneuver the car in emergency situations, especially when you have to make a quick turn. That can be very dangerous. And that is something you should know. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know